There's a Russian security services expert uh, who's just speaking out saying Putin put two of his top intelligence officials under, quote, house arrest for providing poor intelligence ahead of the invasion. He said something that is really relevant to the information problems that Putin has. Quote, they told Putin what he wanted to hear, not the facts about how this invasion would likely progress. If this is familiar, well, it is a problem in many, many dictatorships over the years throughout history, not just Russia, but including Russia, including the Soviet Union in the old days. And a former Kremlin vet, the Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Kozarov, actually told us about this on MSNBC, discussing that Putin aides would sooner try to overthrow him before just going to him with what they know from their own sources might be bad news. Is there anyone inside the Russian government who can even give him the bad news? That is less possible than overthrow him. That's a Russian tradition. They, they uh, fear to tell the boss the truth, but one day they might come with a uh, weapon and escort him uh, either to the grave or to the re um, retirement. That Kremlin insider was offering his analysis based on his experience. The report I quoted, though, is from today's New York Times. It's later than when he told us that. And I want to bring our guests back and go to Ruth. Uh, what do you see here uh, in Putin doing so badly and being so apparently genuinely disappointed if these reports are borne out um, that he has his own aides interrogated uh, for what he might believe is is somehow their incompetence, but what other experts, like we saw there, say is simply the whole, the problem in his ruthless leadership. Yeah, it's not disappointment because it, it's a it's paranoia, it's a fear of people around him doing him in. But the golden rule of autocrats is always blame and punish others for your own miscalculations. And this is, this is part, again, of the logic of authoritarian regimes. As they're in power, they get more and more isolated. We know about this war now that it was not gamed out with his generals. It was not. They had old contingency plans about sanctions against Russia. They didn't do the due diligence. And so he's got to blame someone. And it's pretty typical that he's turning on uh, FSB, which is an agency used to head.
driven by the Omicron subvariant. They're now predicting it could become the dominant strain here in the U.S., believing it is at least 30% more transmissible than Omicron was. They say it wasn't too early to take off the masks, but to keep them nearby, and they're not ruling out needing them again. Steve Osinsami at the CDC tonight in Atlanta. At the same time, most of this country is now dropping COVID restrictions because of declining cases. Health officials tonight are closely watching a new subvariant of Omicron that's spreading overseas. The cases we're seeing are just the tip of the iceberg. That coronavirus subvariant is called BA2, and across Europe and China, it's spreading quickly. Dr. Anthony Fauci believes America could see a new wave of these cases this spring. We expect that over the coming weeks, it likely will be more and more dominant over the BA1. He says the vaccines work against it, and it doesn't appear to cause more severe disease than the current dominant strain. But scientists believe it's between 30 and 80 percent more transmissible. BA2 is already nearly a quarter of all COVID cases in the U.S., and at nearly a third of this country's wastewater sampling sites, which have become an early warning system for COVID cases, samples that are positive for the coronavirus are up 1,000% in the last two weeks. The director of the CDC says don't throw away that mask just yet. They should put that mask in a drawer because if uh, we have more cases that occur in the winter time, if we have more cases that occur because of a new variant, we want to make sure that people have had the opportunity to take those masks off so that we can re-implement them and protect people should we need them again. Public health officials are pointing out that immunity from the vaccines and prior infections is getting less every day. Pfizer, for example, is asking the government to approve a fourth shot for Americans 65 and older. I don't think there's any doubt that sooner or later, particularly among the elderly, that they will need a boost of a fourth shot. Health officials here at the CDC worry that we could only be a couple weeks away from what they're seeing in Europe right now. And they point out that a new variant of the coronavirus could pop up at any time. David? Just a reminder for us all that we have to track it continually. Steve, thank you. Zelensky is still in great danger. He's very well protected right now. He is moving around a lot, but that danger is truly remains. David. Martha Raddatz on the ground in Ukraine for us as well tonight. Martha, thank you. Meantime, President Biden at the White House tomorrow, this crucial call with China's President Xi amid reports that Russia has asked China for help. So let's bring in our senior White House correspondent, Mary Bruce, tonight. Mary, how concerned is the administration that China could help Russia with military equipment or otherwise? Well, David, the White House would not be elevating this to a conversation between the two presidents if they weren't seriously concerned. The administration today warning that China is considering assisting Russia with military equipment. The White House says it speaks volumes that China still has not denounced what Russia is doing in Ukraine. They say they're spreading Russian misinformation. Now, for its part, China says it is not a party to this war. I am told that President Biden will be direct and candid in this conversation tomorrow, that he will make it clear there will be consequences if China aligns with Russia, but David, the White House still won't say what those consequences would be. This is a really high-stakes call. Mary Bruce live at the White House. Mary, thank you. Our coverage of the war in Ukraine for tonight. There is a lot of other news to get to. When we move on now to the pandemic, U.S. authorities tonight are urging caution 
not alarm, but caution amid these rising COVID cases across Europe and China, driven by the Omicron subvariant. They're now predicting it could become the dominant strain here in the U.S., believing it is at least 30% more transmissible than Omicron was. They say it wasn't too early to take off the masks, but to keep them nearby, and they're not ruling out needing them again. Steve Osinsami at the CDC tonight in Atlanta. At the same time, most of this country is now dropping COVID restrictions because of declining cases. Health officials tonight are closely watching a new subvariant of Omicron that's spreading overseas. The cases we're seeing are just the tip of the iceberg. That coronavirus subvariant is called BA2, and across Europe and China, it's spreading quickly. Dr. Anthony Fauci believes America could see a new wave of these cases this spring. We expect that over the coming weeks, it likely will be more and more dominant over the BA1. He says the vaccines work against it, and it doesn't appear to cause more severe disease than the current dominant strain. But scientists believe it's between 30 and 80 percent more transmissible. BA2 is already nearly a quarter of all COVID cases in the U.S., and at nearly a third of this country's wastewater sampling sites, which have become an early warning system for COVID cases, samples that are positive for the coronavirus are up 1,000% in the last two weeks. The director of the CDC says don't throw away that mask just yet. They should put that mask in a drawer because if uh, we have more cases that occur in the winter time, if we have more cases that occur because of a new variant, we want to make sure that people have had the opportunity to take those masks off so that we can re-implement them and protect people should we need them again. Public health officials are pointing out that immunity from the vaccines and prior infections is getting less every day. Pfizer, for example, is asking the government to approve a fourth shot for Americans 65 and older. I don't think there's any doubt that sooner or later, particularly among the elderly, that they will need a boost of a fourth shot. Health officials here at the CDC worry that we could only be a couple weeks away from what they're seeing in Europe right now. And they point out that a new variant of the coronavirus could pop up at any time. David? Just a reminder for us all that we have to track it continually. Steve, thank you. We learned late today what led to that deadly head-on collision killing nine people in Texas, including college athletes and their coach. Investigators now say the driver of the pickup truck that crossed into their lane was just 13 years old. Trevor Alt from Texas now. Tonight, investigators unveiling the shocking cause of that West Texas crash that killed nine people. The NTSB announcing a 13-year-old was behind the wheel of the pickup truck that veered across the center line. It appears at this point in the investigation that the left front tire, which was a spare tire, had failed, which resulted in the vehicle pulling hard to the left and crossing into the uh, opposing lane. The truck slammed head-on into the passenger van of the University of the Southwest men's and women's golf team. Both vehicles catching fire, trapping several inside. It is going to be a head-on collision. Both vehicles fully engulfed at this time. The 13-year-old and the 38-year-old passenger in that pickup both killed, along with six USW students and their coach. A memorial now marking their home course as the campus mourns. We are a... Uh, family of Mustangs, we run as one, we run together. When one of us is hurting, all of us are hurting. And David, two other students were taken to the hospital by helicopter in critical condition on Tuesday night. The university now says they are slowly recovering.
David. All right, Trevor Alt again tonight. Trevor, thank you. We are tracking severe storms into the night and tomorrow from Texas all the way east. Heavy rain, damaging winds, hail, possible tornadoes as well. So let's get right to Chief Meteorologist Ginger Z tracking it all. Look at that sky behind you, Ginger. Yes, David, we've got this dense fog rolling over the Hudson, and by tomorrow we'll be creeping on record high temperatures. And this is well ahead of this next storm that has already produced more than 17 inches of snow in Aspen Springs, Colorado, more than 62 mile per hour gusts just north of Amarillo. A lot of those wind warnings are still up. Blizzard warnings that include haze, Kansas. But move this to the east, and tonight you've got that severe thunderstorm watch. Damaging wind is the main threat from Oklahoma City to just north of Wichita Falls. New Orleans, you're in there too. Tomorrow, it's all about the area from Evansville to Paducah, Birmingham, Alabama, and even Mobile in the Florida Panhandle. David. All right, Ginger Z with us tonight. Ginger, thank you. And when we come back here, the deadly 50-car pileup on the interstate on both sides. And tonight, what authorities are now. Guess what's back? Back again. search for survivors in a bombed-out shelter as Ukrainian forces slow the Russian march. New images from inside the theater where hundreds of civilians had taken shelter before it was hit by a Russian strike. The word children written outside in large letters, the urgent rescue effort, and the U.S. confirming an American citizen has been killed in another strike. What we're learning tonight. President Biden today calling Vladimir Putin a murderous dictator as he prepares to hold a call with China's president. The growing concern, will China give Russia military aid? Also tonight, the stunning turn in the deadly crash involving a college golf team, who investigators now say was driving the other vehicle. The sharp rise in global COVID cases fueled by a highly contagious Omicron subvariant. Dr. Fauci on the fears it's raising here at home. The dangerous way smugglers are hiding drugs on passenger planes without the pilots ever noticing. Now the Fed say it's jeopardizing flight safety. This is NBC Nightly News with Lester Holt. Good evening, everyone. Ukraine and Russia are entering their fourth week of war tonight, and still unanswered is why. What is clear is that this is not the fight the Russians expected. Their casualties are high, their objectives, according to experts, are mostly unrealized, and their apparent systematic assault on civilians knows no end. In the latest, even signage, apparently visible from the air, warning that children were among those sheltered in a theater basement in Mariupol, failed to prevent its bombing. Thankfully, the shelter held. A top U.N. official tonight says 726 civilian deaths have been recorded since the war began, including 52 children. The true numbers believed to be higher. Apartment buildings, food, storage pantries, all bombed. From a hospital tonight, we'll hear the gut-wrenching stories of survivors. And the stakes only getting higher as President Biden prepares to speak to China's President Xi about all this. We'll begin in Kiev again tonight with Richard Engel. With Russia's military advance stalled, its troops in disarray, and thousands of them killed, according to estimates by U.S. officials. Russian forces are now going after civilians, knowingly. In Mariupol, Ukraine's military posting this video of hundreds of people who've been taking shelter in the basement of a theater. 
In front and in back were banners in Russian reading children big enough to be visible from the sky. Yesterday, Russia bombed it anyway. But tonight, officials say the shelter remained intact. In Chernihiv, Russia struck an apartment building. Among the casualties was an American citizen. No indication the building was targeted. And in Kiev, firefighters scrambled to rescue survivors after yet another apparently indiscriminate attack. British intelligence reports Russia is using older, less precise weapons and is resorting to older, cruder tactics, including trying to starve out Kiev. Russia has clearly resorted to siege warfare. This was one of the biggest food storage facilities in the entire country. 50,000 tons of food were here, all burned. And it's impossible that this was an accident because it was bombed twice. And then another food storage facility just about a mile from here was also attacked. Do you have a, a message? To in you? a hospital bed nearby, Volodymyr was injured while trying to salvage food from the burned out warehouses. I want this war to be over so I can see my family, he said. Down the hall is Katerina, who sold milk and yogurt at an open market. She was in a basement and went outside for a moment to wash a blanket when a Russian shell exploded. It tore off her leg and shrapnel went through her back and into a lung. Before I had a house and a job. Now I'm disabled and have no home. And why? For what? She asked began to curse Russia. <laughs> President Zelensky visited another hospital in Kyiv, meeting the family we met last week. All of them shot in their car at close range by Russian troops as they were trying to escape. <laughs> Zelensky also addressed Germany's parliament and asked for help to stop Russia from erecting a new Berlin Wall, separating the free world from tyranny and repression. All right, Richard, joining us now. And Richard, you and your team have been in Kiev for quite some time right now. Can you give us an idea what it's like to live, to work, to exist in a place that is a bullseye as far as the Russians are concerned? The city has changed uh, quite a bit over the last several weeks. When we first arrived here, Ukrainian soldiers were very nervous. When we would pull up to a checkpoint, they would raise their weapons at us. They were asking a lot of questions. Now they feel that they're winning and they're a lot more relaxed. When we pull up to the checkpoints, the soldiers are smiling. They're talking to us, asking us personal questions. A few bars and restaurants have even started to open up. The only question really on people's minds here is, how will Vladimir Putin react now that he has his back against the wall? Well, we continue to wish you and all our colleagues in the field there safe passage. Thank you, Richard. Some of the first people to make it out of the beleaguered city of Mariupol have now made it to safety and are sharing their stories of struggle and survival. Molly Hunter spoke with some of them. For 16 days, the Russians have besieged, starved out, the city of Mariupol. From above, it's unrecognizable. 80 to 90 percent of the buildings destroyed, according to city officials, 350,000 residents trapped inside. On the southeast corner of the country, on the Black Sea, the strategic port is on the Russian land route to Crimea. Now, survivors, Mariupol residents, 17-year-old Yulia and her mother, also Yulia, are part of the first group of civilians to make it out alive. When you know that uh, any, uh, any moment you can be killed and uh, you can choose to be killed uh, moving from this town or to be killed sitting in a room. 
They had no heat, no electricity, no water. We together cooked borscht, and it was, I was scared. The windows and doors on their apartment blew out on March 4th. The bombs were falling, and uh, they were falling from the airplanes. Their home completely destroyed on March 12th. At age 17, Yulia can distinguish the different sounds of Russian aerial attacks. You can hear the mines when they're falling uh, and when they're close because it's like this sound. In the last few days, the city council says 30,000 people have escaped the city, but not on humanitarian corridors. Convoys of private cars, 6,500 in recent days, leaving from what was thought to be a safe meeting point, the now-destroyed drama theater. Driving together is safer, like if someone hits one car, and another would help, and like with everything, like together it's safer. Racing out of Mariupol, Yulia says they went through more than a dozen checkpoints. She says Russian soldiers took her phone, went through it, deleted all of the photos she had taken of the destruction. Lester? It is amazing what folks are going through. Thank Molly, thank you. With the UN now putting the number of refugees at more than 3.2 million, an astonishing number, some of them are finding shelter in churches, hoping their prayers are being heard. Gabe Gutierrez is in Lviv. Tonight in Ukraine, faith is being tested. At Lviv's Christ Fellowship Church, Reverend Igor Ivanishan has opened his doors to refugees. It seems surreal, like movie, like except you see real people suffering. They hug me and they cry and they like they cannot believe bombs are not falling on them. Bogdan Priyanko lost touch with his wife and four children days ago after shelling damaged the home where they'd been staying without him near Kiev. I began to pray to God, he says. I asked God to save them. Please take my life, but I want them to be saved. He says he couldn't meet up with his family because of Russian checkpoints. You don't know where your family is? Yeah, I know that they're uh, not in Ukraine. Go, but don't know where. Outside the church, Victoria Ladmarova can't let go of Emma and Lila. Why aren't they closing the skies, she says. The Russians are destroying everything. Another refugee tells us he saw his friend shot by Russian troops. We blurred the picture he showed us. It's enough to test anyone's faith. But in this war, some prayers are answered. After we first spoke, today Bogdan finally got a hold of his wife and kids. They're somewhere in Poland, en route to Germany. Uh, I said mm, to God, you know, God, uh, give my life, but save life of my children and um, help them, you know, and he helped. I'm really, really happy. <laughs> Many more families are also keeping the faith as they prepare to pack into this church for yet another night. Lester. All right, Gabe, thank you. President Biden had more harsh words today for Russian President Putin as concern grows that Russia could turn to China for a lifeline to continue its assault. Kristen Welker is at the White House tonight. Kristen, the president not mincing words today. He isn't, Lester. That's right. President Biden called Vladimir Putin a murderous dictator. And tomorrow he's going to have what's expected to be a really tough phone call with Chinese President Xi. Just today, the Secretary of State said the administration is concerned China, a key Russian partner, is considering directly assisting Russia with military equipment. And earlier this week, the National Security Advisor warned his Chinese counterpart there would be serious consequences if China stepped in to help Russia. Now, remember, Lester, 
Minister, China has not condemned the invasion. And just like much of Europe, they continue to buy Russian oil and gas. Meanwhile, an administration official tells us that new U.S. military aid to Ukraine will be sent out as fast as possible. Lester. All right, Kristen Welker at the White House tonight. Thank you. We're following some breaking news now. Let's get these late details. Tonight, stunning new details in the fiery collision killing nine, including seven members of a college golf team. Federal investigators revealing the driver of the pickup truck that struck the team van wasn't old enough to legally drive. A 13-year-old child was behind the wheel of the pickup truck. Federal agents with the NTSB say the 13-year-old was driving with a 38-year-old man in the passenger seat. Both died at the scene. Investigators say new evidence suggests what could have caused the pickup to veer suddenly into the other lane. The front tire, which was a spare tire, had failed, which resulted in the vehicle pulling hard to the left and crossing into the uh, opposing lane. The parents of 22-year-old Jackson Zinn, who died at the scene, say they're shocked. It's still tragic, but yeah. I, I don't... We work it out. I don't want to get hung up on the details. I want to celebrate my son's life. The University of the Southwest sharing their heartbreak. Our institution is crushed and broken, but strong. But tonight, a glimmer of hope. After being airlifted from a fiery, mangled scene, Dayton Price and Hayden Underhill, the only survivors on board the team van, are improving in a Lubbock, Texas hospital. And tonight, authorities stress that having a 13-year-old behind the wheel is a clear violation of the law. They tell me that this investigation is ongoing, as many questions remain. Lester. Organcheski, thank you. In 60 seconds, our investigation into drug smuggling on planes and the safety concerns we're uncovering. Even as the numbers fall, there is growing concern about yet another potential COVID wave here as an Omicron subvariant drives cases way up overseas. It comes as Americans once again try to return to normal. Here's Miguel Almaguer. The record rise in new COVID cases overseas is tonight spawning renewed concern around the globe. Omicron subvariant BA2 appears to be fueling new infections in the Western Pacific, African, and European regions. But the WHO says the 11 million new cases are just the tip of the iceberg as fewer people are testing. What's happening in pockets of the globe? Is that a canary in the coal mine? Well, it very well could be. The UK definitely parallels us in so many different ways. We always pay very close attention to what our UK colleagues do. With data from several countries, including the UK, showing sharp spikes in cases around the same time, here at home, restrictions have just been loosened. Do you think there's a tolerance? Would Americans be willing to mask back up again? The fact is that COVID may not be done with us. It's going to be around for a while. We'll have to deal with it. But you're right. There will not be an appetite for people to go back to a masking situation. So let's try and avoid that by doing other things. Trying to prevent the next surge, the White House is seeking $22.5 billion in COVID funding. But many lawmakers have balked at the price tag for more boosters, testing, treatments, and variant research. Well, it's absolutely critical. We will not be able to do the kind of research to address the inevitable next variant if we don't get the funding that we're talking about. The $22.5 billion, that's a hefty price tag. Is all of that money needed? I have to tell you, we need more than that. Tonight, as Americans enjoy better days that are finally here, worrisome times could also lie ahead. 
Miguel Almaguer, NBC News. Also tonight, Homeland Security says smugglers have started hiding drugs in a dangerous place on passenger planes. Tom Costello on the potential risk to travelers in partnership with our New York affiliate WNBC. At JFK Airport in New York, international drug smuggling has gone right under the feet of the unsuspecting pilots. This is an ideal spot. Something? Inside the avionics bay, the brains of a modern jetliner. Homeland Security inspectors tell our partners at WNBC New York they found more than 30 kilos of cocaine and heroin jammed into the compartments, already packed with electronics and computers that control a plane's radios and autopilot functions. Aviation experts warn that could cause those critical systems to overheat. You could lose communication radios or autopilot computers, flight control computers. Uh, it could be uh, quite significant. Customs officers say the drugs are usually smuggled on board in Latin America or the Caribbean without the pilot's knowledge, then retrieved by insiders at a U.S. airport. This is all related to individuals who work for the airline who are smuggling these uh, drugs off of the aircraft. An American Airlines mechanic is now facing charges of retrieving 25 pounds of cocaine from an avionics bay wrapped in his jacket. American tells NBC News its corporate security team works in close partnership with law enforcement to prevent any such activity from occurring at our airline. Homeland Security has a conspiracy investigations group working with airports here and abroad to identify employees who may be working with smugglers. Lester? Okay, Tom Costello, thanks. Up next, why some communities are being left out of federal disaster aid. Our look into the troubling pattern. We're back now with forgotten victims of natural disasters. An NBC News analysis finding the federal government denied dozens of state requests for aid in the wake of weather catastrophes. And often those left out are the most vulnerable. Here's Blaine Alexander. In Fultondale, Alabama, 14 months after the storm tore through, the scars are still fresh. It was an EF3 tornado that touched down. That was just hours after a tornado devastated the small town, impacting more than a third of the nearly 10,000 people here. And today, just standing here right now, I'm counting one, two, three, four, five houses that are still damaged, still haven't been repaired from more than a year ago. That's right. Why? Uh, it's all about funding. Funding that was denied by FEMA, which determined the damage here was not of such severity and magnitude to require federal help. So the federal government would not declare Fultondale a disaster zone. And it's not just this town. An NBC News analysis found this tornado was one of 33 disasters denied FEMA aid over the last three years, when the federal government turned down nearly 40% of states' requests from FEMA's Individual Assistance Program, which provides money for people without insurance, covering everything from housing to medical bills. The reason? FEMA says certain disasters are too small for federal help, so state and local governments should step in instead. But Alabama is one of at least 39 states that does not allocate money to rebuild homes after natural disasters. It is frustrating because it kind of leaves you helpless, you know, to your citizens, to the, the ones that are still damaged and still trying to repair now. But it's a challenge. NBC News found poverty rates are above the national average in nearly all of the areas denied assistance. Arnaldo Vasquez would have applied for FEMA aid. This is your house. 
He was at home with his family when the tornado tore through, trapped by a fallen tree for more than six hours. Where were you? The other side. You were on the other side? Yeah. Paramedics had to amputate his leg on the spot to save his life. With no insurance, Arnaldo owes nearly $60,000 in medical bills. We didn't have a house. We didn't have clothes, he tells me. Everything had been lost. They have rebuilt thanks to help from Good Samaritans. FEMA says it's taking steps to identify and remove barriers to its programs, but for people in Fultondale... There is no resiliency or coming back until you can get this stuff rebuilt. There's no healing. There's not. For now, much of this town sits frozen in time and in tragedy. Blaine Alexander, NBC News, Fultondale, Alabama. That's Nightly News. By the way, you can catch a new edition of Nightly News Kids Edition streaming right now. Thank you for watching, everyone. I'm Lester Holt. Please take care of yourself and each other. Good night.